the next call I had was way out at just outside the even broad range of our practice area, but it was somebody who had been trying to get a veterinarian out for their down cow for a couple of days. And there were just no veterinarians. And we were like, what the heck, it's the last day, might as well go. Right. Went with him and sure enough, it was bad and we needed to euthanize. But I talked to him, you know, about what was going on. He felt so horrible because he'd been trying and trying to get a vet. And I talked to him, you know, down from that, I explained what the euthanasia was going to look like as I kind of always did, went through. And he was so grateful at the end. And driving back from that, I realized that I'd been wrong about my career the whole time. I'd always thought that my job was to diagnose and treat animals and fix them. And sure, that's a part of my job, but I think really underneath it all, my primary job was always making somebody's crappy day a little bit better. That is Dr. Christy Corp Manamaji, a veterinarian who has taken a non-traditional route into communications. And this is the Venn Foundation's Veterinary Pulse podcast. I'm Jordan Benchia, Venn Foundation's Executive Director. Join me and our co-host and Venn Foundation board member, Dr. Matt Holland, as we talk with veterinary colleagues about critical topics and share stories. Stories that connect us as humans, as animals, as a veterinary community. This podcast is made possible by individuals like you who donate to the Venn Foundation. Thank you. Please check the episode notes for bios, links, and information mentioned. Hey all, a quick heads up that some of the content in today's episode may include a trigger as it relates to anxiety. As a reminder, if you are a veterinary student or a veterinarian, the Vin Foundation's confidential support group, Vets for Vets, is here for you, and you can find information to reach out in the episode notes. Please know, you are not alone. Hey, Christy, welcome. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks. Thank, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. With this uh, idea for an episode the other day, Christy and I were chatting and we thought, you know, this would be a, a great idea to just chat on a, on a podcast episode and, and share this conversation <laughs> with others. So <laughs> here we are. We never chat, <laughs> Uh, during work, work chat. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Uh, so Christy, t- tell our audience, what is your current role in the veterinary profession? Uh, currently, I work and have worked for the past 10 years for the Veterinary Information Network. And I am loosely categorized under the org chart under communications. That means that I do some writing for our client education blog, Vets Insight. It means that I do some work with the news team. It means that I help write outgoing emails. It means that I chase around after people and try to get them in the same room talking to each other. It honestly means anything with words on any given day. You work with words. (laughs) I do, this is what I do. (laughs) You work with words and you corral people. Yes, I've added Vin Border Collie to my tagline. I think there it makes you go. Sense. <laughs> and you also help with the Vin Foundation. Um, Christy is wonderful in helping us with a lot of our communications as well, and we're very grateful. So, uh, you know, I'm sure when you went to veterinary school, your thought was, "Oh, I'll utilize this to work with words and corral people." But- <laughs> <laughs> 
basically, I went to veterinary school because I didn't think I was ever going to be brave enough to talk to people and do anything with English or writing, which was my true love. So oh, there's an irony okay. for you. There is an irony. <laughs> so, so you went to veterinary school thinking, oh, I'll never get a job doing what I really love. So instead, I'm going to work with animals because I love them. Right. And I, it's not to say that I wasn't heavily driven towards veterinary school. That was, you know, from the time I could pronounce veterinarian, which was at a pretty young age, that was what I wanted to do. But by the time I'd reached college, I realized that my strengths really lay in the liberal arts, in history, languages, English, literature, sociology. Um, but by that time, I was an animal science major because in the early 19 late 80s, early 90s, getting a liberal arts degree was considered um, learning how to say, would you like fries with that in Latin? So I did the thing. I went to the science major because I thought if I majored in English, I would be able to be a journalist or teach or write. I didn't think I was good enough to write for a living. I knew I didn't want to teach. And I was terrified of humans to talk to them. I didn't realize that veterinary medicine was going to be all about humans. And we can get more into that. <laughs> wow, isn't that the case, right? We hear that often. So so you were animal science major and you decided to go to veterinary school. Where did you end up going to veterinary school? So I did the most traditional route one could possibly do. I graduated high school. I went to UC Davis and got my bachelor's degree in animal science. And then I went straight from there into veterinary school at UC Davis. Davis um, did not pass go did not definitely did not collect $200 <laughs> you're not collecting money at that point you're paying money at that point <laughs> exactly I graduated from UC Davis in 1996 and so what was your first job out of veterinary school so when I was in vet school I said the first two things I will never do are small animal medicine and research. So my first job out of veterinary school was part-time in a small animal practice where <laughs> my boss had never before had an associate. I had never before been a veterinarian. And let's just say we were not well suited for one another. Mentoring was not a thing. It was almost every horror story I've heard of from new graduates. And that job and I parted ways after a tumultuous three or four months. Um, my next job was doing biologics research. <laughs> so I conducted field <laughs> trials in dairy cattle and in sheep for vaccines. And we were a small company. So I also did technical services, a little bit of regulatory work uh, corresponding with state veterinarians and such, and also started up the marketing department. Wow. So you, you got to love those startups, right? You get the opportunity to do absolutely everything. Exactly. <laughs> I tell my kids not to worry about applying for jobs they don't feel qualified for because I've yet to have one that I was qualified for. <laughs> so how did you end up at then out of veterinary school after your small animal and research jobs? So after... I left my research job in about two, in 2000. Um, I tried to stay uh, be a stay-at-home mother for a year with my oldest daughter, 
um, turned out that was not a good plan for any of us. And I wound up getting my dream job, which was a large animal ambulatory position. Um, And that was what I had always wanted to do. I had tracked large animal in school. I got that job five years out of school, never having done any large animal medicine between graduating and that time. Um, Mm -hmm. And I loved it. It was a great practice, great people. I was there for 10 years. Um, Unfortunately, my bosses sold to a corporation as part of their exit strategy, which made sense at the time. In about 2007, well, as we all know, maybe 2008, well, as we all know, the recession hit in 2008. And it turned out, shockingly enough, that horses aren't recession proof. So we well struggled. horses themselves, yes, but right, yes. It turns out equine medicine is in fact a luxury item. Who knew? <laughs> so, so did you find that people were unwilling to pay for the veterinary services they needed during the recession for their they for their were equine animals? Unwilling horses? and often unable to. Um, we were in the South mm-hmm. Sacramento area which was hit very hard by the recession and especially by the home loan bubble. Mm. And many of our clients were, had jobs, their primary jobs were in real estate construction or they worked for the state of California. Mm. And so it started with people becoming a little bit more cautious, even some of our better clients about how aggressively they would work up a lameness in their horse, for instance. And it got to, you know, maybe I'll just turn them out in pasture and see how it goes for a month or two. Mm -hmm. And by the end of it all, in about 2010, I was euthanizing somewhere around six or seven horses a week. Oh my god! For almost purely economic reasons. It would be an older horse or it would be one with kind of a bit of an issue, but it was an issue that would have worked, they would have dealt with better in more affluent times. And I couldn't blame them. My clients were facing, do I feed my kids or take care of the horse? There was no way to sell the horse because no one was buying. Fully registered paint mares and foals were going for $200 at auction. Oh my goodness. As a set. And these were well-bred horses at the time. Right, right. So there was literally almost nothing else people could do. Um, mm-hmm. It was either, we saw a lot of neglect cases in that time, and it was honestly pretty grueling. And that was weirdly how my writing career got started. Um, I started blogging while we were slow, and then. I wrote an essay called Under the Blue Tarps about the economic euthanasias, and it was picked up by a wonderful magazine called The Horse, Mm -hmm. and I wound up freelancing for them for a couple of years, and in 2011, the corporation that owned our practice made the decision to sell, and large animal, there were no other jobs for us, and I wrote an essay that was published on Salon about that time and that feeling like we were euthanizing a beloved pet. It was, you know, the practice felt like a family. We were all incredibly close. Um, the technician I worked with had was in her forties and had been there since she was 18. It was her first job while she was in tech school. Oh my um, goodness. 
And so I wrote that essay and it got sort of circular, circulated around in some of the veterinary community, which I didn't realize until I started getting random emails from veterinarians. <laughs> and about two weeks before the practice closed, I came into a phone message from our, and my office manager said, there was a Dr. Pyan who called and he wanted to talk to you about writing. And that was a few months later how I came to work for Vin. Wow. That's a, it's a great story. It's fascinating. Just the different aspects of things like the recession that you don't think about. And I wonder how, what things are happening now that we don't, that we don't really think about as a result of the pandemic, right? That we will see in months, years down the line. Oh, I think we're definitely going to see shifts, you know, we're seeing shifts, not just to the profession, but to the world at large. And I think that's mm -hmm. something veterinarians, we tend to be very focused on what we do and we tend not to grasp how the broader world impacts what we do and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think people in general tend to be pretty focused <laughs> on their, it's true, it's right? true. I mean, true, focused on their reality, their lives, their work. So how do you, how do you view the veterinary profession today? Um, that's a fascinating one. And it's something that I find fun to think about because when I was a practicing veterinarian, I didn't really view the veterinary profession at all. It was simply mm -hmm. what I did day in and day out. Um, mm -hmm. I've thought about it a lot now. I think that there are definitely a lot of shifts going on. I think we're going to see some shakeup as we did with the recession from the pandemic, you know, people's views of their animals and what they need and what they can afford changes from time to time. I do think we have an access to care issue in the profession. Um, being a veterinarian, owning a veterinary practice is incredibly, can be incredibly overhead intensive. There's a lot of cost that goes into it for what people have come to expect as far as levels of care go. Mm -hmm. um, but we're wildly inefficient. You will have, you know, five, one or two doctor practices in the same town, each with its own x-ray machine, each with its own ultrasound, each with its own dentistry suite, each with its own surgical facilities. And you don't see that in human medicine. And I think mm -hmm. over time, we've talked about this a lot, gosh, over the past decade or two, but I think that at some point there's going to be a breaking point between what veterinary clients can pay for care and support and how that translates into a practice owner being able to have the demanded bells and whistles, also have the right number of doctors and also be able to pay staff a living wage and a thriving wage at that, not just a living wage. Right. Um, I think that those are all problems we see right now. Um, you know, I've seen people say, oh, it's a grim time for the profession. I think any time is grim and changes. We've survived mm -hmm. the demise of the cart horse and the onslaught of the tractor. <laughs> <laughs> you know, people aren't going to stop having animals, I think, at least any time soon. But I do think that the ways in which we look at medicine, the ways in which we look at the human-animal bond are constantly shifting and changing. Yeah, that's interesting, especially now when you have this, it seems, I mean, it seems almost unprecedented levels of adoptions 
from of people with with new animals right. right during the pandemic and then the then the fact that of them being home and actually noticing what's going on with their animals that they had already um right. it's that combined with curbside that combined with all the staffing issues that we're seeing across the board with every industry it's it's a lot yeah, yeah and i think that is a, a huge point i think our greater economy and what we consider when we consider that intersection of employees employers and customers that's changing i think everywhere mm -hmm. and it would be naive to think it's not going to impact us in veterinary medicine right right um, and i think right now i'd say for people who are coming into the profession the thing that i think is most important is really getting a broad view of the issues impacting the profession and how you as an individual are going to face them. Right. I think we see a lot of people entering and graduating vet school without really fully realizing what that means. Mm -hmm. um, we mm -hmm. are first and foremost a people profession. We're a service profession. We aren't foremost in animal profession as much as many of us would like to pretend that that was the case. I've, and you've seen me disillusion so many undergraduates who are pre-vet by saying this. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's true. Uh, you know, I was speaking to a, a reporter yesterday for a story that they're doing on one of the Vin Foundation resources. And, and she's like, well, what, you know, I don't understand. It's like, well, people get into veterinary medicine because they love animals, but you're dealing a lot with people, not animals, right? I mean, you're dealing with animals, but when you're dealing with the animals, you're sick, they're sick. And sometimes the clients can't afford the, the treatment that they recommend, or they're unhappy exactly. about how much you're charging. And, you know, at the end of the day, you, you are dealing with animals, but you're dealing with people and people come with all their baggage as we all have, right? And then you're dealing with them in an instance in which money is involved yeah. and their pet, which they love dearly is involved. And for some reason, it seems that there are many pet owners that seem to think that veterinary medicine should cost less than human medicine, which I, I don't really understand because it's not as though they use different machines or <laughs> tests, well, et cetera. You know, how, how often do we actually see our full medical costs? Right. You know, I yeah. just had a whole i'm 51 so i have the middle-aged let's do all the blood work let's take some x-rays of your extraordinarily creaky neck etc mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. just had a battery of you know blood work x-rays whatnot done at kaiser and i just paid my bill it was 355 dollars that was right. not the cost right <laughs> that wasn't mm -hmm. even remotely the cost right but i don't you know like many people i'm extremely privileged in that i have great health care through my job so mm -hmm. i don't see the top end i don't see that cost mm -hmm. most of the time yeah. and i think that's what most people don't really grasp when they're dealing with their pet um mm -hmm. and it was something that you know it's and that's come up honestly in veterinary practice at least in the 20 some odd years that I've been around and I'm right. sure before, um, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. ever since health insurance has become, you know, standard for human medicine. 
And we could get in the topic of pet insurance, right? I mean, that was something that the reporter asked me. Uh. She said, I personally have pet insurance, right? And that, that could be a whole episode in and of itself. I mean, I personally have it for my dog oh. and it's been a game changer, but right. But that's I how I was able to find to out. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, for access to care, it's important to remember that pet insurance really benefits people who already have a certain degree of economic privilege. Absolutely. Because very yeah. often, you know, not just the pre paying the premiums each month, but quite often you have to pay at the veterinary practice and then you get reimbursed. Right. If it's you out don't of have yeah. the nest to be able to front that, pet insurance 100%. does you no good. Right, um, right. And so those are all things that, you know, exist as a problem. Absolutely. Um, but, and dealing with humans. And if there was one thing I think I want to impart to people who are considering veterinary medicine or thinking about what veterinarians deal with on a daily basis or for colleagues, I think the primary emotion we face in a veterinary appointment quite often is fear. And it mm. might manifest as anger. It might manifest mm -hmm. as complaints about the bill. It might manifest as I have Googled everything pertaining to this one bald spot on my dog. Um, it, it manifests in a lot of different ways, but it's essentially fear. People are bringing an animal that they deeply love to a healthcare provider, and they're terribly, terribly afraid you're going to say either that there's something wrong with their pet when they're bringing it in for a healthy visit, or that there's nothing you can do about this thing that's worrying them about the pet, or that it's time. Right. Or sometimes even worse, that they're going to be faced with, well, we could fix your pet, but it's going to cost this much, and they know they can't afford it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those are, those are good points. And I think helping pre-veterinary students or veterinary colleagues realize that as they go into the profession, it is so much more than just the animals because yeah. I mean, at least for the foundation, the Vin foundation, our goal is, is to really be able to set them up for success, right? right? Give them all the information and allow them to go in and encourage them to go in with eyes wide open right? And to be there to support them throughout it. What are the areas that you're most passionate about in the profession? I mean, it, we've talked a little bit about pre-veterinary students, so I definitely say, I, I definitely say yes. that's one of them. <laughs> I think that's one <laughs> of what them. what other areas? Um, because you've, you've sort of had this non-traditional path, right? right? And which I love, you know, sharing those <laughs> stories on this podcast as well, because it's not, veterinary medicine is made up of so many jobs and careers and it's not just small animal practice, right? So I think you're a great example of this different path that you've taken in veterinary medicine while being seriously encompassed by it and involved in it. And so I think it's, it's, it's great to talk to you about these things. I think part of it is that flexibility. Um, I am super passionate about imparting that both, you know, to colleagues and to the greater public. Um, you know, I had a friend of mine who's a scientist who was arguing with me about what a veterinarian means. And I was pointing <laughs> out to him that even though I essentially write and talk for a living now, I am still a veterinarian. My degree doesn't go anywhere. It didn't go away be when I stopped being in practice or even when I let my license go a couple of years ago because I'm no longer in practice. Um, mm -hmm. I am still a veterinarian. It, 
is central to what I do. And I think for colleagues realizing the flexibility that we have, you know, whether we stay affiliated with the profession, even to move on to other professions, you know, we've learned critical thinking, or we should have learned critical thinking skills. We've mm-hmm. learned how to take essentially clues and work with those clues to try to solve a puzzle. Um, we pick up along the way, some of us more than others, managerial skills, communication skills, all of those things are things that we've gotten through our degree and training that we can then, you know, move forward with no matter what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's incredibly helpful. I'm also becoming increasingly passionate about diversity, equity, and inclusion within the profession. Um, mm-hmm. And for me, the emphasis is high on inclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I am in many ways representative of the profession. I am a white cis woman in mm-hmm. my middle <laughs> in my middle years. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, that isn't what the world looks like and it shouldn't be what our profession just looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, you, We need more cultural diversity, more racial diversity, more gender diversity. We need people who represent the people we serve. Um, and again, I use serve very deliberately for how I view the right. profession. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also as someone with anxiety, someone who identifies as queer, I've spent a lot of my life feeling kind of on the periphery of any group that I'm in. So mm-hmm. inclusion mm-hmm. for me is a super pet project and, you know, it come, it definitely informs my work on a daily basis. Um, it really informs a lot of what I do and get excited about. Um, mm-hmm. I don't get super into student debt except for on a professional level simply because there are others who are so much better at that than I am, even though it's a huge problem in the profession. Um, Tony Bartels knows that, and I I, I will leave that for him to be passionate about. (laughs) You've got enough passion for a lot of people with that. (laughs) Um, And then mental health for me is a passion, Mm -hmm. and talking about and normalizing Again, I know it's probably not a surprise when you know you're on the org charter into communications. Communicating things is, I think, increasingly important. I've mm-hmm. many veterinarians are have anxiety, have depression, are perfectionists. We often come with a whole host of baggage, and we come into a profession that started originally in agriculture, has its roots in agriculture, and still to this day has a lot of its culture in that sort of, I'm going to use the word toxic masculinity in the deepest sense of the sort of testosterone-laden, we are going to work 60-hour weeks and walk uphill both ways in the snow until our fingers bleed mentality. Mm It shouldn't be that hard. Life shouldn't be that hard. Um, it's okay not to be perfect. It's okay to say, I don't know. It's okay to say, I'm really struggling and I need help. Um, and so many of us, I think, 
enter that profe the profession without those, without that permission. Based on what you've shared, do you feel that there are currently good resources in the profession to support colleagues that are struggling with anxiety or colleagues that are wanting to feel more included and or ways to help improve inclusion in the profession as a whole? I think absolutely. Um, I'll speak briefly to the DEI portion first because that's where honestly I am, I consider myself to be far less of an expert and less effective and I will put in some plugs for people who do good work. Um, Lisa Greenhill with AAVMC has an amazing podcast and does uh, YouTube videos and just does some really wonderful work on looking at the demographics and demographic changes within the profession and promoting those. Uh, the Multicultural Vet Med Association, MCVMA, and they really are doing a lot to try to support particularly BIPOC, um, that's Black Indigenous People of Color, um, members of the profession, whether they be pre-vet all the way up through veterinarians um, in practice or in other parts of the career. Then there's VOICE, and forgive me because VOICE changed its acronym and I can never remember what it stands for, but they're a student-led organization that works for um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and they do some really great work. Um, I also try to support and put a plug out there for uh, Pride VMA. <laughs> I had a moment with my letters there. And no supporting. worries. There's a lot of acronyms. And we actually <laughs> had <laughs> India, well, India Woods was actually um, one of the presidents from Voice was on a, one of our podcasts episodes. Um, if somebody wants to check those out, and we'll put all yes. of these links that um, Christy is mentioning in the episode notes as always. So don't feel like you need to rush and write these down. These will all be on the episode notes. Um, okay. So continue on Christy. Pride VMA is where you left off. <laughs> right. And so I think, and there, there are so many more and I can't possibly list them all. Uh, Lisa Wogan of the VIN News Service did a great round couple of roundtables with leaders of some of these affiliate groups. And um, I think that that's a great place to start. I see my role in trying to work in DEI as more of trying to be a highly educated or at least a marginally educated ally. Um, you know, there's a lot that I have not experienced in my life as far as marginalization goes. I've had a lot of privileges from family and everything else. So while I can't necessarily identify with what a lot of people have lived in their experiences, I can try to amplify that. And I hope to do that sometimes. Um, as far as anxiety goes and mental health, I'm going to put out my first plug for Vets for Vets. <laughs> the Vin Foundation's pure resource and you know you always you can talk way more about this and I know you did a great podcast with Bree not long ago or and with Susan Cohen um, but I think having that peer group and being able to put colleagues together 
who have had similar problems, you know, with Vets for Vets, I've mentored a few colleagues who deal with anxiety and just kind of going through, you know, no, you're not alone. This is how I felt. Um, you don't have to deal with this. Let's help you find some resources. It's okay to go to therapy. It's okay to take medication. Um, these are some techniques that I have found helpful for me. Those resources didn't exist when I was a young veterinarian, even when I was a fairly seasoned veterinarian. Um, I mm -hmm. used to think it was normal on Monday. I would have horrible Sunday night, Monday morning anxiety. I would be convinced mm -hmm. that all of my patients had died that weekend or the ones who hadn't died had gone to some other practice had been referred elsewhere where the practitioner had decided that I had done a terrible job or that I was going to get sued or that I was going to get fired or that I was going to lose my license all of course on a Monday morning. And Which sounds very similar to, um, to the article that Michelle wrote about imposter syndrome. Yes. Right? Yes. Mm -hmm. And yeah. imposter syndrome is a huge problem in our profession. I had it so bad in vet school that I literally went through four years expecting a faculty member to come up and tap me on the shoulder and ask me what I was doing in class. Oh, um, yeah. But it, they didn't have a word for it back then, or if they did, right. it hadn't made it to us yet. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, incredibly common in the veterinary profession. And it's okay to say to people, no, you don't have to deal with that. You know, you don't have to go out to your car and throw up on Monday mornings before you drive into work because you're so scared of what you're going to find when you get there. Um, right. I just assumed that everyone else was facing the same mental challenges and handling them better than I was. It took me nearly 40 years of my life to realize that my brain lies to me on a fairly regular basis. Thank you so much, neurotransmitters. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, it's, I remember one time there's just the idea that we are this bag of chemicals, right? And yeah, literally. <laughs> it is. And I think, you know, the more that people understand that, your neurotransmitters not making enough is just the same as your pancreas not making enough insulin or, right. your, you know, bile duct being occluded or anything else that we would deal with. Um, and, you know, quite often when someone is dealing in the throes of a really bad attack of anxiety or depression, you know, you can't power through that any more than you can power through a insulin shock as a diabetic. Right, right. Um, and expecting us, but we, we expect ourselves and we expect other people to do that. And I think that that has historically been a problem in the profession that we have a lot of older and seasoned practitioners with our own bouts of anxiety or depression, but we're in denial about it because there is still a stigma trying to nurture or mentor younger <laughs> practitioners with anxiety or depression. And I think at some point it's necessary for some of us to stand up and say, yes, this is real. Yes, it sucks. Yes, it is a health crisis in many ways. And yes, there are resources and we can get help and that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's something that we see with Vets for Vets consistently is just 
helping people understand that whatever they are going through, they are not alone. And whether it's addiction or self-harm or stress or anxiety or any of the things that they might feel very lonely and scared to share, we have heard it all, you know, and there's people that have gotten to the other side and you as an example as a mentor for Vets for Vets and um, we're so grateful for that. And I think that's just the most important thing is letting them know that they're not alone. And when they realize that, you know, they're not alone, it it just helps the process and open up for the potential that there could be good out there, right? Very much so. And that's, you know, you and I talked about the importance of things like this podcast and sharing our stories. And mm-hmm. I think that that's a huge part of it. Um, there are many of us in veterinary medicine who are by nature introverted shy, socially anxious, and somewhat isolated. Um, those things don't all necessarily go together, but they do have a tendency to overlap. Right. And I think it's, you know, we are the kids who were kind of nerdy in school and also would spend our time at the parties petting the, you know, family dog or cat rather than interacting. Um, and many of us found were somewhat surprised to find ourselves again in a world that is populated largely by people. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) And so I think it is super important to reach out for those resources. You know, I didn't start therapy until I was in my 30s. And I actually had to work with friends. Um, I had a couple of friends who are therapists. My sister is a psychiatrist. And I had to talk to them enough first to realize that what I was dealing with wasn't completely crazy in my head before I was brave enough to go to a therapist. Right. And then it took me therapy before I was able to acknowledge that, yeah, I could probably really benefit by anti-anxiety meds. Mm-hmm. And for me, at least, the medication I'm on, it doesn't make the anxiety go away. I liken mm-hmm. it to going for a hike at sea level with, say, a 20-pound pack versus <laughs> unmedicated me is hiking up at 5,000 feet with a 40-pound pack. That's a very good analogy. Yeah. You still have mm-hmm. to do the hike. You still have to do the work, but it doesn't right. have to be as hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and taking that step, I mean, in therapy – my experience with therapy has just been that if nothing else, just hearing yourself say something out loud, you then realize, wait, that doesn't sound as bad. Or yeah, that is something that I really need. (laughs) I need to pay some attention there and I should probably be checking that because (laughs) it didn't sound so bad inside. And then I say it out loud and then, you know, wait, that doesn't sound so good. Uh, Or, you know, oh, it's not as scary once I just vocalize it out loud, right? Or it's like, wow, really in your brain, you'd really work this up to be this really crazy thing. But really when you say it out loud, it's like, that's actually not as crazy, right? Exactly. It's that, you know, we can get very lonely in our own heads. Um, It's possible to get very stuck. You know, each of us really only experiences the world through our own jumbled jello mass of electrical impulses. Right, right. (laughs) And so it's really very, very easy for us to get incredibly stuck. And it is helpful to say it out loud, to get feedback from someone, to have someone reality check. And, you know, some of the most helpful things I've had people say to me are, okay, well, if you're afraid of this, what does the worst case scenario look like? Yes. What are the range of possibilities? And That's what I call them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. really bad? You know, mm-hmm. 
it turns out you can't actually die of embarrassment. I've tried it on any number of occasions. <laughs> You've given it a valiant effort. <laughs> I really have. And I'm kind of surprised to realize that, no, in fact, it seems, based on the scientific method, it seems to be very hard. The possibilities are diminishingly small. <laughs> But it sounds so realistic inside your brain, right? I it mean- really, really does. And, you know, there's there's really a non-zero, you know, there's a very minor, near-zero chance on any given day that every single person on the planet hates me. If nothing else, <laughs> many of them haven't gotten a chance to yet. Right, right. You haven't given them that opportunity. <laughs> Oh, Christy, I really appreciate your time. <laughs> and I and I, I, I so appreciate you coming on the podcast and being willing to be vulnerable and share your story because I am sure that there are many colleagues out there that hopefully just by hearing your story, it helps them feel less alone and bring some lightness to it. Um, I mean, you're such a wonderful human and coworker that I really enjoy working with. <laughs> Thank you, and it's true. It's true. And... Um, and I, and I think that that's, you know, what, one of my hopes in starting this podcast was just to be able to share these stories and through these stories, as we mentioned, being able to connect, right. And that's what helps us connect as humans and ideally learn from each other and improve, um, and always be a work in progress. Um, is there anything else you want to leave our audience with today? I think just, again, that concept that we're all linked together through all of these things, the bigger Mm -hmm. global things like pandemics and climate change, they impact our economy, they impact our animals, they impact our health, they impact each of us individually. And the more we can move through the world with kind of some kindness towards ourselves and a willingness to step into somebody else's shoes, I think the easier it is. And I fail mm-hmm. at this on a fairly regular basis. But my last day in practice, I'm going to tell this story. I hope I have time for it. My last You've day got in time. practice, <laughs> we had only two or three calls. And one was to vaccinate some horses at a farm that was sort of a halfway house for men who had been formerly incarcerated or were dealing with substance abuse addiction and recovering. And these two horses hated needles with a thousand blinding volcanoes of hell. They just, they wanted nothing to do with being poked. So it was always this huge ordeal dealing with them. And I kind of went out there with this, great, this is my you know last day that I get to go try to be killed by a couple of horses who really don't like me or the needles. But I tend to be pretty patient with them and worked with through, and we've done this for years. And I got them vaccinated. And at the end, the man who was working with me said, you know, I don't know what we're going to do without you all. You've always been so kind and patient with them. Um, you know, do you like divinity? And that took me a moment because it was a religious mission. And I thought, um, 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 and it turned out he met the candy. He's like, I left some on your seat in your truck. <laughs> and then the next call I had was way out at just outside the even broad range of our practice area, but it was somebody who had been trying to get a veterinarian out for their down cow for a couple of days. And there were just no veterinarians. And we were like, well, what the heck? It's the last day. Might as well go. Right. 
went with him and sure enough, it was bad and we needed to euthanize. But I talked to him, you know, about what was going on. He felt so horrible because he'd been trying and trying to get a vet. And I talked to him, you know, down from that, I explained what the euthanasia was going to look like as I kind of always did and went through. And he was so grateful at the end. And driving back from that, I realized that I'd been wrong about my career the whole time. I'd always thought that my job was to diagnose and treat animals and fix them. And sure, that's a part of my job, but I think really underneath it all, my primary job was always making somebody's crappy day a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And I've tried to remember that going forward, that at least for me, that's my job. Mm-hmm. Um it's not always a success. Like with every job, you know, some days we're going to be better at it than others with no matter what we do. That's a powerful, powerful lesson and realization to have, especially on your last day. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) See, I can't Uh, be serious, Jordan. (laughs) (laughs) At points. So last question that I enjoy asking our guests, do you have a secret talent or something you enjoy doing, which others might not know about? I live my life pretty much out loud and in front of people. So (laughs) I'm not sure how many things people wouldn't realize about me or think about me. Um, But I do have a superpower, which is I can always have whatever I need on me for almost any tiny emergency, whether that's getting gum out of my son's eyelashes, sorry, Aiden, when he was about four, (laughs) using lip balm and a Kleenex, thank you very much, or being on top of the cinder cone at Mount Lassen National Park and having a older gentleman come up to me with his hiking boot, which had come apart and said, the group that you were with said you probably have something in your backpack because you've had everything in your backpack for <laughs> to deal with every situation. I looked and I'm like, pulled out the first aid tape and taped up his boot and sent him on his way. So that's my So you're power. pretty much like Captain Resourceful. I am Mary Poppins, but without the hat, Mary- yes. <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs> Oh, Christy. (laughs) Thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're really busy and time is one of the most precious things we have next to our health. So thank you so, so much. Um, As we always say, all, all the links that Christy mentioned will be in the episode notes. And we encourage you to share this podcast if you find it interesting and worthy of your time, which we hope you do. Um, Thank you so much, Christy. I really, really appreciate your time and your willingness to share your story. That was so much fun. Thanks, Jordan. It's been great. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Veterinary Pulse. Please check the episode notes for additional information referenced in the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please follow, subscribe, and share review. We welcome feedback and hope you will tune in again. You can find out more about the VIN Foundation through our website, vinfoundation.org, and our social media channels. Thank you for being here. Be well.